So 50 years ago, there was a really strange case about a man that lost part of his hearing. Uh, he was a renowned opera singer, and he mysteriously lost his ability to hit certain notes, even though he had spent the last several decades hitting those notes consistently. He went to go see a specialist, a man by the name of Dr. Tomatis, and he had been to other specialists before, all of them who thought that it was a vocal problem. But Dr. Tomatis knew otherwise. Now, it's really interesting. The average opera singer produces a sound that's just a little bit louder than a military jet taking off from an aircraft carrier. Or for context, it's almost as loud as the reggaeton blasting out of my window <laughs> at 2 o'clock in the morning when I'm trying to sleep. Now, the sound is even louder inside your own skull. Now, that, that discovery led Dr. Tomatis to make a really interesting diagnosis. The opera singer had been deafened by the sound of his own voice. He had something that doctors called selective muteness, meaning that he could not hit certain notes because of selective deafness. Here's what Dr. Tomatis realized. If you can't hear a note, you can't sing that note. The voice can only reproduce what the ear can hear. And it was his inability to hear his uh, own voice that made it impossible for him to reproduce that note. Now, one thing I learned in reading this story is that your ability to do something is limited by your ability to hear well. That for some of us, our inabilities in life are not because we don't have a lot of good intentions, but we're just not hearing well. For some of us, we have been deafened by our own inner critic we have been deafened by the sound of our own voice. For me, that inner critic is loud. He's very loud, actually. And for sometimes, it's difficult for me to hear God's truth spoken through Scripture to me because my own voice has deafened myself. For others of us, it's not just our own voice, it's the voice of the accuser. Now, I know we have a lot of people from all over, uh, a lot of different faith traditions. Some of y'all, y'all grew up in churches where uh, if somebody mentions the devil, you almost want to break out speaking in tongues because you're ready to go to a spiritual battle against it. For others of you, uh, you're intellectual. The devil is something that's a nice theory and it's not necessarily something that you think about a lot. But to everybody, whether you are Presbyterian or Pentecostal, and, um, the scripture calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. The accuser, which means that what the devil does day in and day out is he makes accusations against you. He is trying to... Um, make us feel one way about ourselves, not based on what God says about us, but based on accusations that he's lobbying against us of what you are and what you're not. And so my hope is whenever we come to service together that we would have a time and an opportunity to hear God's voice spoken to us. That despite all of the things that we might say about ourselves, despite the accusations of the enemy and spirit, real spiritual attacks that want to um, deafen us to hear God's voice, that we would be able to hear God's voice. Our goal when we gather is to silence the voice of everyone and everything else so that we can hear God's voice speak to us. So we are in week two, week two of our Embodied series, and the Embodied series is all about connecting your faith to your body. The way your life is lived is not lived in a spiritual realm. You're not floating around in space, but you are a physical person with a physical reality, and that impacts everything about you, including your spiritual life. And we're doing this series to help recover and understand uh, a major part 
of why we exist and how we exist and what it means to follow Jesus with all of our lives. Last week, we looked at a scripture, and a number of scriptures actually, that talked about why we exist as people. Why do you think you exist? Why are you here right now? What is your goal for your life? One of the scriptures that we saw last week said it very plainly, that we have been made by God and we have been made for God. That one of the best aims, the best aim you can aim for your life, for the purpose of your life, is to bring God glory in every single interaction that you have with someone else or with yourself. That the goal of our life is to bring God glory. Now, I don't have time to re-preach that message. Um, Praise God for the podcast ministry if uh, you weren't here for that. Uh, But today, I want to look at how we came to be. So we're looking at some pretty big questions, why you exist and how you have come to be. And there's a lot of theories on that. Culture will tell you one way of how you have come to be. We have our own family history, our, you know, our ancestry.com, of these ancestors who, who came. Um, but scripture tells us something even bigger and better than that. I was having a conversation with a young man in our church this week. And uh, in talking to him, I realized a couple of things. One, I realized I am getting older. Like I do, I, I do realize that. Uh, he's like 21 years old, just so full of life. His eyes are bright, and I'm just turning into an old curmudgeon. But um, uh, the second thing I realized is that there's so many competing narratives for your life. There's so many competing voices for wh- how you have come to be. And one, com- one thing in the conversation that we landed on was like how crazy it is, all of the things that had to happen for you to be here. Like one small thing that changed in your great, great, great par- grandparent's story and you wouldn't be here today. Scripture tells us that that's not happenstance, that's not an accident, but that this was something that has been foreknown by the mind of God. So Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, it says this, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My, soul's, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, and, and when as yet no, there was none of them. So what the author here is saying in Psalm 139 is a beautiful reality that you and I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And it is not just the decision of your parents or your grandparents, but that God in, the, in his mind, God knew the days that were marked out for you. It was God's will that you exist. But still, even in saying that our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we're gonna get to this in a lot more detail, um, this is not to say that you are perfect. Anybody with a brain in a mirror knows that you're not perfect. This is not to say that we are perfect, but rather our body for many people is in fact broken. All of our bodies are broken, which means that they do not operate as perfectly as they were created to be. We are not entirely as we are meant to be, but yet and still, you and I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Now there are all sorts of issues with our bodies that give us great pain. There is sickness, there is mental health, there's a loss of function, there's ability and, and disability, and there's all of these things, all of these things we're gonna really walk down, uh, talk a lot of, more about as we get further down the line in this series. But still, with everything that is wrong with our bodies, scripture would still say, look at you and say, you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, let me give you a little bit of theology real quick. 
There are certain genres of the, of the Bible that are not meant to be read that apply to you. Like there's certain things that you should read in the scripture and I wouldn't necessarily apply it to your life like without doing what scripture writers, what, what uh, theologians call exegesis, trying to understand how this applies to your life. But, you know, when I was in college, I did, this was my method of reading the Bible. I would take my Bible and I would drop it on my bed. And wherever it opened to, I'm like, this is God's word to me today. I know I'm not the only person. Raise your hand if you've ever done that before. Thank you. Come on, loud. There we go. There we go. I've gotten some wild theological conclusions out of that approach. Let me tell you that. But there are certain genres of scripture, like the wisdom literature, of which the Psalms is one of them, that are meant to be read and sung by everybody. And the Psalms are songs that God's people would sing, meaning that this was a scripture that every one of God's people was supposed to stand up and sing together in unison that, Lord, you formed me, my inward parts, you knitted me together in my, in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. These are meant to be sung by you about you. These are affirmations that God in his sovereign wisdom wants you to make about you and about him as well. So there's five things about the scripture that I want us to think about. Um, one, the scripture is telling us that we are handmade. We're handmade by the divine. And that means that there is uh, something special about us. You know, last week, um, the hottest ticket item in, in the Renaissance community are the Renaissance mugs. And um, I got like 19 DMs on Instagram when I posted a picture of me with my mug. Like, man, I didn't get one. I'm like, you should have come to the 10 a.m. service. I'm just saying. Um, but every Monday morning or every morning when I drink from that coffee mug, I know that I appreciate it more than you do. Here's why. I know the person who made it. I would sit by and watch my wife, our communications director. Give it up for my wife, y'all, Jessica. She does a lot of work. I was there watching her at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, on her Adobe Illustrator trying to form and format this mug to be something that would be special and meaningful. When I look at the mug, I'm not just looking at a, a, an item that was delivered through something. I'm, t I'm thinking about the maker, the one who's labored in this community for the last eight years, the blood, sweat, and tears that she's put in to be a part and to form this community to be, to be what it is. So when I see the mug, I don't just see a mug. I see the maker and the mug. And it makes it that much more precious. When scripture says that you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made, it's saying that you are handmade. And it wants you thinking about the creator of your, of your body as well. You and I have not been randomly uh, assembled on an assembly line. We have been handmade by God, and that makes us special, and that should give us cause to praise the Lord. Not just handmade, but we are fearfully made. Fearfully is an interesting concept when you attach the word fearfully to God. Like, what is God afraid of? And it doesn't mean fearfully in the sense that God is afraid of anything, but rather that God is aware of the preciousness of what he holds. Isaiah 43 and 4, it says, because you are precious in my sight and honored, I love you. It didn't take more than like 2.4 seconds for me to become that guy uh, when my first son was born. I immediately switched into the most overprotective parent imaginable. The, my first son, Jameson, was born. You know, they take him to the warming table to cut the umbilical cord. And there's this nurse in there who's, she's probably had 20 years of experience. She's probably been a part of a thousand births. 
She put the scissors down on the table, on this ledge above the table. Where she did it was a very safe thing. I took those scissors and like moved them to the back of the table. So I was like, yeah, man, that's crazy because, uh, let me just move this a little bit. Uh, and she was looking at me like, what are you doing? But I was just so consumed with the preciousness of what I just got the chance to hold. And that changed everything about the way I was interacting. When scripture says we are fearfully and wonderfully made, it's saying you are precious. And that has a lot of implications, not just for how you see yourself, but how we see other people. We're handmade, we're fearfully made, we are individually made. Scripture does not speak about us as just some group of random group of people. It says, I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, in Hebrew and in Greek, you have to pay attention to the tenses and the verbs and how different things are together. Um, but this is a first person singular. It's not just that we're singing, God, you have made us specially and fearfully. No, you have made me specifically individually. And guess what? God made you as an individual. He made you you and not them on purpose. There is a reason and a will that God created you to be you, to the parents that you have in, this, in the areas that you grew up in and all these different things. Uh, before his death, there was a man named Rabbi Zusia, and he gave a really profound illustration on the individuality of which, God, of which God created us. He says, when I stand before God, he will not ask me, why were you not Moses? He will ask me, why were you not Zusia? Why were you not you? Now, when I think about my own life, I think about the comparison trap that I fall in too often, and that even though God created me as an individual, so quickly I'm, I'm looking to the left or to the right as cues about what I should be like, instead of going to the Creator and asking God, what does He have for me? I don't know much, but I do know this. The quickest way to kill something good is by comparing it to something else. The quickest way to destroy your contentment with your life is by comparing it to someone else's life. God created you an individual with a path for you, uh, and as we are walking that out, um, God doesn't want us comparing ourselves to other people. Comparison only has two exits. On the highway of comparison, there's only two exits. It's either pride or discouragement. There's no other exit. Every time you hop on that highway, the only two exits is pride, where you feel better than other people, or discouragement, where you feel worse about yourself and your life. But God created you as an individual, and he has a life, he has plans for you. We are also uh, created purposefully. So we're handmade, we're fearfully made, we're individuals, we're purposeful. What do you see in Psalm 139? You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Have you ever done, I don't do knitting, I'm terrible at it, but I do know this. I've seen people do it. It's an intentional act, it's purposeful. There's skill behind it. You have to be careful of what you're doing and what you're not doing. This means that God has, when he created us, he has purpose for us. Not just us generally, but you specifically. I love Ephesians 2 and 10. It says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This does not mean your life is random and meaningless. It means that God has things for you. God has prepared good things in advance for you to do. And it also means God has created us personally. It is not someone else that God delegated the assignment to. God himself has made us. Now, there's three really big implications that this means. If God has made us handmade, fearfully, individually, purposefully, and personally, then this should really change how we relate to each other. This should absolutely change the way that we relate to each other. 
Because if what Psalm 139 is saying is true, that means this. Every single person you interact with is handmade, fearfully, individually, and purposefully created. Consequently, to disregard or to discard other people, meaning that you are disregarding and discarding other people that have been made fearfully, wonderfully in the image of God. And that's a dangerous thing to do. I've given this example before, but if you uh, were to see my kids running around service, running around church, this building after service, and you saw one of my children doing something that was dangerous, and you're on the line to talk to me to tell me, good job, please tell me, good job. Um, <laughs> if you're on the line to tell me, good job, and you see one of my kids doing something that's going to harm themselves, and you disregard them to tell me, good job, I'm not going to hear a word that you're saying. I don't want anything to do. I don't want to hear any of your praises that you're telling me about me if you disregard the ones who are in whose, image I will, um, in whose image they have been created. My kids have been made in my image, and you cannot have a good relationship with me unless you, uh, unless you respect and honor the ones in whose image they have been made. Here's the thing. There's a scripture in Isaiah when it talks about uh, these people who are praying to say, God, I don't know what it is. Like, we've been praying, we've been fasting, and God is saying to them, and God tells them in a really startling way. He says, you've been praying, you've been fasting, and as you were praying and fasting, you were walking past people who were hungry to come to the temple and sing me praises. Keep your praises. Go back and feed those people. If we see the beauty of what this scripture is saying in Psalm 139, then that means that nobody can be discarded or disregarded or that we would never be able to look at any other human being and see them as irredeemable. Now, this does not mean that we should all sing kumbaya, stand in a circle, and pretend like we don't have convictions and disagreements with people. My hope and my prayer is that all of us would have deep convictions about the truth that we know that God wants us to hold to. Simultaneously, I would hope that those convictions would also include the conviction that the other person in whom I am looking in their eyes, that person has been made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. So I should never just discard them as trash. Here's what Tim Keller says about tolerance. He says, tolerance is not about not having beliefs. No, it is not about having, not, it's not about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. Which means, it's not that you shouldn't have convictions, but that if you are a Christian, if you are being formed by scripture and not by Twitter and social media, then that means that you are not just discarding people as trash. Now, I'll be very honest here. This is a challenge for me. This is something that convicts me as I think about it because there's so many people I've just completely written off. This does not mean also that every single person you interact with is your assignment. If there's a random troll on social media, I'm not saying to spend your day, you know, trying to convince them of their redeemability. Don't do that. That's a waste of time. But there are people who are close to you that you're ready to discard. There are people who know you're a Christian, and, and what they know about Christianity is that Christians discard people. They know that we talk about a God who welcomes us all back to the table, who came at the infinite cost of his own life to, to pay for our sins, and at the same time, we as mean as rattlesnakes half of the time. We're so caught up in what everyone else around us in culture is doing. Here's the thing. Here's my prayer for us. Everybody who's a Christian who comes to Renaissance, that this, the foundation for what shapes the way we enter into conversations, the, the foundation for what shapes the way that we enter into relationship with other people, is that we see every other person made in God's image. 
Check this out. In the scripture in Matthew 5, Jesus gives a really startling analogy. He says, check this out. If you are offering your gifts on the altar, and while you're at the altar about to offer God a gift, if you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, here's what Jesus says to do. Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. Leave it there. And then first go and be reconciled with your brother or your sister. And then after you've made that horizontal reconciliation, then come back and offer your gift. That reframes the way that we see our, our goal of not just loving God vertically and emotionally, but loving God also and loving people. People ask Jesus, what's the most important command? He said, love God and love other people. Jesus doesn't separate these two. And that the, one of the best expressions of loving God is loving difficult people. The mark of Christian maturity is how you deal with people that you disagree with. How did Jesus deal with people he disagreed with? How did Jesus deal with failures? Did he discard them? Jesus rocked with Judas for years knowing he was going to betray him. One of the things I think God is inviting us to as we see how our faith connects to our bodies is that we would see the people in front of us as made in God's image. All right, this, would all, this also means, if this is true, Psalm 139, what it's telling us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, then it also affects that, the way that we handle the hot topics and the pressing issues of our day. It affects the way that we work, the things that we do, not just being an armchair activist, but actually engaging in real things. Years ago, I worked at Sing Sing as a chaplain now, Sing Sing is the closest maximum security prison to New York City, and uh, in the two years that I worked there, it undid me. Uh, I, I can't really fully put into words how challenging it was to see these men just discarded and thrown away by society. And it's not just that once upon a time they became adults and they made bad decisions, and this is not to justify things that people have done, but when I think about the comprehensive nature of our society and our structures, I read this one statistic, and I read this here a couple weeks ago, actually, and it just blows my mind. 70% of incarcerated men have been in foster care. 70%. If people really wanted to be tough on crime, seriously, let's be super tough on crime, we would be investing so much money and time and energy into children who are in foster care. But we have failed these men at every single turn in society, and the most convenient thing to do is to throw them away in cages so we don't have to look at them, because in looking at them, we would realize our own sins. How we handle our time, and this is not just for us to, to think about this theoretically, but with our own lives. I say that God has things for us. The goal of my life is not that you would come to Renaissance and hear me preach. The goal of my life is that you would find your vision for how God wants to activate you the good works that God wants you to do, whether that's in uh, an injustice that we see in our lives, but that you would give yourself for it. And then that Christianity would be known by the way that you live and you love other people and that you serve other people. In addition to your love for God and your walking tightly with him, loving him, enjoying fellowship with God, it also pours out on other people. It also means it would change the way that we walked into even really explosive topics like abortion. Uh, I have been deeply saddened by the types of conversations around this issue in this country. And make no mistake about it, it is a very nuanced conversation with many, many, many layers. There is a political layer, which is about power. There's a social and economic layer, and all of which surround all of the drivers, all of the things in society that push women towards unwanted pregnancies, from the lack of access to healthcare, to domestic abuse, and all of these things. There are so many layers to this conversation. 
And then there is an ethical and a spiritual layer about the questions of life and where we have come from. Here's my hope for every Christian at Renaissance, that we would enter into this extremely charged conversation humbly, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, and holding on to the beautiful truth that Scripture paints about the value of life in general. That life, whether it is in the womb or a jail cell, that it wouldn't just be life in uh, the unborn life that we would care about, and that so much of the national conversation has been hijacked by a so-called pro-life movement, which in one way promotes the life of the, the beauty of the life of the unborn and peddles AR-15s at the same time. We have been fearfully and wonderfully made by God, which means that every single life is precious. And I would just hope that we would see life as precious, as beautiful, as something that should be nurtured and cared for in every single arena possible. And that scripture, my prayer is that scripture is a foundation for what shapes the way we enter into these conversations, not sound bites on Twitter or CNN pundits giving us their opinions. Now, I think of Psalm 139, if we internalized it, we would allow it, it would change the way we relate to each other. It would change the way we relate to the hot topics of our day. And here's where we're landing today. It would change the way we view ourselves. So scripture gives us this ridiculously beautiful claim. In verse 14, it says this, wonderful are your works. Not okay. When the psalm writer is talking about himself, I praise you because I have been fearfully and wonderfully made, he stops and gives an, excla an, uh, an exclamation that says, wonderful are your works. That includes you. The lived experience of most people is to not see themselves as wonderful. I know that's true for me. I can see it in other people. I can see it in nature. A couple months ago, my wife and I went to, uh, we went to a Broadway show, and we saw Tina on Broadway. And yo, that lady could sing. I don't know her name, but that shorty could sing. <laughs> her voice was like, for half of the show, I was just looking at my wife like, yo, can you believe this? Like, she's just incredible. And I, would, I left that show thinking like, yo, God's creation is amazing. For people to be able to sing and dance like that, that's amazing. I love seeing like beautiful nature. My wife and I just got back from Iceland a couple months ago. That's not a humble brag, but um, <laughs> we flew on points, y'all. We flew on points. Um, and I was like looking at these waterfalls and I was like, yo, this joint is amazing. And I can say wonderful are your works when I look at a waterfall or a glacier in Iceland. But when I look in the mirror, I don't see, I don't see anything wondrous. As a matter of fact, the, the most easy thing for me to think about myself is not that I'm wondrous and fearfully and wonderfully made, but all of my defects, all of my flaws, all of the things that I don't like about me. That voice is deafening me against the voice of God that tells me I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Last week at our um, church anniversary, there was a woman who stopped me um, outside and I got really uncomfortable in a conversation uh, as she was trying to bless me, and she did bless me eventually. Um, she said, Pastor Jordan, you know, in all of this, we're celebrating God's faithfulness to Renaissance for eight years, but I actually want to celebrate you and your faithfulness to Renaissance in these past eight years. And I want to thank you for your faithfulness to serve us. And I smiled and I nodded, but deep down inside, the only thing I could think about was all of my failures and flaws, all of the things I wanted to do that we haven't done all of my inconsistencies, the things that I'm still not sure about how to do and how to say. And as she's trying to bless me and give me affirmation, which my soul certainly needed, I was struggling to see myself as one who has been fearfully and wonderfully made. 
I can access the criticisms. I joked around, I've joked around with people at Renaissance, like it is, there is no criticism you can give me that I haven't told myself 93 times already. I'm my worst critic. And that voice is so loud, that voice is so enduring and so consistent that in many ways, it shuts out and it makes me unable to hear the voice of God that tells me, Jordan, wondrous are your works and God includes you in those wondrous works. Underneath something, all of that, um, is something that many people would call shame. Therapist Brene Brown defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Now, there's so many different things that could cause us to feel shame. Uh, one of the things I can think about, first and foremost, is rejection. Rejection by other people. That might have been rejection when you went in for an audition and they didn't choose you. It might be rejection based on a relationship when someone did something to you that outright, that outright rejected you. Maybe you're still trying to navigate the pain of that rejection in your relationship. Maybe that relationship has ended and you were left to yourself wondering why they didn't want you. Psychologists have already determined that the pain of rejection is identical to actually being punched in the stomach. That the same parts of your brain that light up when you get hit activate when you feel rejection. And what it does to us is not just make us feel pain, but it makes us feel defective. It makes that voice that says, yo, if you were better, they wouldn't have rejected you like that. And it makes us feel like God has made some junk. Scripture says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You might not be for everybody, but God has made you fearfully and wonderfully. So sometimes it's rejection. Sometimes for me, man, it's just inconsistency. I wish I was a more consistent person. And when, I'm recon when I have to reconcile with my own inconsistency, I just feel defective and broken. I just feel like other people would do a better job at this than I am doing. And it's not just because I'm doing a bad job, it's because I am the wrong person. That I am messed up, that I am unable to, to do the things that I say I want to do. And that might be you as well, in any area of your life where you just feel so inconsistent. And the accusation that you lodge against yourself is that you are you're defective, there's something wrong with you. For other people, it's your abilities or your lack of abilities. And certainly as people age, your abilities start to lessen and things that you were able to do get taken away from you. And it could lead towards real feelings of shame, that there's something wrong with you. Again, our bodies, we exist in a broken world, which means that nothing, we're not able to do everything, we're not perfect, but we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And when God looks at us, he sees his wondrous works. We're going to get to the topic of disability in a number of weeks, and I'm very excited for that as well, uh, to see, to show God's glory through not just our abilities, but through our disabilities and the things that we're not able to do. Here's a big one, y'all, our appearance. There's so many people in America that feel real shame based on the way they look. I was talking to a friend this week, and he was telling me that he grew up in an all-white neighborhood, and there was a time when he was young when he just wanted to be white. He wanted to have blue eyes and blonde hair, just like all the rest of the kids. And he would look at himself in the mirror and see something that's defective, something that's messed up. Because surely, if he was good and right and made in God's image, and he would look just like the beauty standards that are peddled to us all over the place. One of the ways that racism does violence, violence to people, is it lauds 
a European uh, beauty standard of which everything else is held to that standard so that if you are not this, you are defective. And people literally will almost kill themselves to match up to a beauty standard that has been created for us. Not just that, but it's also in these ridiculous um, surgically modified appearances that, have been peddled for, that are being peddled to us on, on Instagram to make us think that unless your body looks like this, these perfect proportions that people are literally almost killing themselves to achieve, then something is wrong with you. Scripture tells us in Acts 17, from one man, God made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. What the writer of Acts, Luke, is saying here is that God, God made your family who they are on purpose. God made you your ethnicity on purpose to display his beauty, uh, the beauty of his creation. That when God wanted to express beauty, he made you and your family, and he did that on purpose. And whether or not that aligns to the beauty standards of social media or whatever it is being presented to us, that is a lie. And the truth is that God has wanted to express his beauty through you and through your life. That when God wanted to make Jordan, he wanted me to have my skin color. He wanted me to have the width of my nose. He wanted me to have my lips. He wanted me to be from New York because he really loves me. A lot of times with our own appearance, uh, we need to realize how much of that voice in our head is not the voice of God, it is the voice of the accuser. It is the voice of the enemy, the Satan, that belongs in the pit of hell that tells you when you look at yourself that you are not beauty because you don't meet another standard. Everything good that you have ever experienced in your life, you have experienced through that body that you have. You're never getting another one. There's never going to be another one that you're going to get. Every good thing that you have ever experienced, you've experienced in this body. So as a result, if the enemy really wanted to do damage to you, he would make you hate your own body. So sometimes it's our appearance. Other times, uh, a really big one um, is habitual sin. And I've been a pastor long enough to know that when there is something serious that we do that we don't like about ourselves, something that we cannot seem to shake ourselves from, it just causes so much shame. We think that we are defective because we cannot seem to shake the thing that we want to shake. You might have two days in the right direction and you feel like you slide back five steps in your life. Here's the thing about you. Sanctification is a long road. The process of you in your life becoming more like Jesus is a long road. And one of the biggest things that's going to derail you, the biggest thing that will derail you from actually growing to be more like Jesus is shame that says you are defective, there's something wrong with you, so you might as well just stop and give in because you're never going to change. It's always going to be the same way. That is a voice from the pit of hell. One of the things I think about is God knows, like God knows you. Like God knows what happened to you in your childhood. God knows the stories that have formed you, the narratives that have made it so difficult for you right now in this moment. And God is not judging you based on someone, else, someone else's life. What I always like to reframe for us is that God is giving us invitations to come closer to him. God has given you an invitation to come closer to him. And God knows you're not going to get it all right. 
Scripture, what does it say in Romans 5? But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's my hope for you. If you're struggling with something that you know you shouldn't be struggling with and you feel like it's marring you, that it's deforming you, my prayer for you is that you would keep on going. And that one day, I've seen this happen over and over and over again. One day, for the people who have, for the men and the women of God who have kept moving in the right direction, kept trusting, kept confessing, kept pressing on toward the mark that they are being called to, one day they look back and they say, man, I can't believe I've come this far. But in the moment, it is paralyzing. Habitual sin definitely robs us of the image of God being formed in us, um, and it robs us of our ability to see ourselves as fearfully and wonderfully made. Certainly, I'd be remiss to even to not bring up also the things, not that we do, but the things that have been done to us. And while this might not be my story personally, I know for so many people this painful reality of the things that have been done to them, the trauma that they have endured in their own bodies, it is a painful, painful, painful reality, and it is an extremely difficult thing to navigate, not feeling like you are defective based on what has happened to you, and all of the complexities about God and faith that that brings up as well. A couple of things, uh, things that we've done in the past. You know, um, one of the challenges with the conversation nationally about racism is that racism is something that brings up feelings of shame probably more than anything else. So there's only like three people that I've ever met that have ever confessed to having racist ideologies, thoughts, and notions in them, specifically. Because racism is something that we're just not, we just have so much shame with the, the notion of having internalized the concepts of racism in our, in our life. You know what's crazy? COVID has taught us that whenever there's an, there's an outbreak, there's carriers. For the last 400 years in American history, there have been nothing but outbreaks of racism. And we're looking around like, I don't know who has it, it's not me. You know, I, I, love, um, I love accents. I love accents. My mother-in-law's from Jamaica, and um, I love going to Jamaica with her and hearing her Jamaican accent in all of its glory. And if I was in Jamaica hearing her talk with a Jamaican accent, I would never believe that she was from Memphis. People from Memphis have, like, the strongest southern accents. I would never believe that she was from Memphis because, like, she talks like a Jamaican. And now why does she talk like a Jamaican? It wasn't because one day she was like six years old, she took Jamaican class, you know what I'm saying? How to be Jamaican, like how to walk, anything like that. It was something subconsciously formed in her based on her surroundings. Without her knowledge, without her permission, there was something formed in her powerfully that shapes the way that she interacts with the world. The same thing is true with racism. It's impossible to grow up in a racist culture like America and not have racism formed inside of us. That includes internalized racism for black people, which leads to colorism and all these different things in the way we view ourselves. But we're never going to admit to that because of shame. And if we're going to get free, we need to learn how to talk about shame and how to remove its power from us. So we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And here are some tips on how you and I can battle shame this week to see ourselves, to hear the voice of God thrive in our life, the first thing we need to do is we need to own and name our feelings. Own and name our feelings. Listen to this, y'all. You cannot heal from what you won't admit. It's impossible. I've seen a lot of people grow over the years. I have never seen anybody grow in any arena in their life from which they are unwilling to admit it. It's never happened. In our emotion series, we talked about um, this one quote, which I love. It says, buried emotions don't die. They just get buried alive. 
The buried emotions of shame that you have, it's not going to die. You can put it in the trunk all you want. It's just going to be buried alive. One of my favorite movies is Goodfellas. And there's that one scene, that's a good movie. There's that one scene where like Joe Pesci and everybody's driving and um, there's like banging on the trunk. They try to bury this dude in the trunk and he's just banging because he's alive still, even though they put him in the trunk and then they go handle him in the way that they did. But in a lot of ways, our emotions are like that. Our shame is like that. At the most inconvenient time, it's going to start banging on the trunk. So we need to own and name our feelings. Secondly, we need to speak out loud, speak it out loud to those who we trust. Shame is like mold. Mold loves the dark and it grows there and takes it take over, until it takes over every crevice. And the only thing that can stop mold is light. Here's what Brene Brown says about practicing shame resilience. Shame derives its power from being unspeakable. That's why it loves perfectionists. It's so easy to keep us quiet. If we name shame and speak it out, and speak out what it seeks to keep hidden, we basically cut it off at the knees. Shame hates having words wrapped around it. If we speak shame, it begins to wither. Language and story bring light to shame and destroy it. But in order for us to do that, it's going to require that we are vulnerable in real ways. And here's the crazy thing about vulnerability. I've never met anybody who likes to be vulnerable. I've never met anybody who likes to be vulnerable. There are people who like to be fake vulnerable on social media. But there's nobody who likes to truly be vulnerable because it feels like death. You're letting people in to see you. You're letting people in to see the real you, parts about you that you don't love. This past week, I was in, I was, uh, in my office struggling with some um, anxiety that I've been feeling. And I was like, I need to call my wife and just tell her that I'm really struggling with some anxiety right now. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want her thinking that I was weak. Because deep down inside, I thought that I was weak. And still, I mustered the strength to call her, to be vulnerable and to share what was going on. Here's one thing I found. Vulnerability is our most accurate measurement of courage. Your vulnerability is your most accurate me measurement of courage. What did Jesus do? Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's struggling. He's about to be crucified. What does Jesus do? He goes to his friends and says, friends, I need you to pray with me for at least, I need you to pray, for, pray with me for at least this hour. He was confessing a need. And he was praying vulnerably in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's the crazy thing about vulnerability. Vulnerability feels like weakness to you, but it looks like courage to other people. When someone really shares vulnerably, to them it feels weak, but to, to you, to the crowd, to the audience, they see that as courage. Years ago in our first DNA group, uh, there was a man who um, sh really shared his life. We were doing these little icebreakers, like, what's your favorite fried chicken place, this, this, and this. And that dude just was like, yo, let me just keep it all the way live and just drop the hammer and just share a piece of his life vulnerably. It changed the entire group. Here's my hope for our DNA groups this semester. First and foremost, that none, none of you sign up late. Uh, <laughs> I want anybody who wants to be a part of our group life at Renaissance. So how are you cared for at Renaissance? By being in groups. We cannot, uh, <clears throat> the pastors here at Renaissance don't, um, go down a roster and call every single person every single day. We expect for our community to be shepherding our community together, and we certainly hear concerns from that. So we want you to grow in your faith, to become more like Jesus in a group. These are, uh, we do this through DNA groups at Renaissance. And for those of you who do DNA groups, I, don't want, I want you to be the one who brings the vulnerability to the group. I want your group to look back and say, that was an amazing group because homie was, was vulnerable from day one. 
And your vulnerability will be contagious, and it will unleash vulnerability throughout the rest of the group, and you will see real and powerful things happening as a result. I've had so many whack conversations at community groups and DNA groups. Seriously, this is like, yeah, how you doing? Ah, oh, man, my third cousin, you know what I'm saying, his karate tournament didn't go well, but um, I'm like, all right, how are you doing? Yeah, you know, and they just talk about everything else except for themselves. Um, and that's shame. That's shame that makes people hold on to different things. Uh, so we need to speak out loud to those who we trust. And we need, if we don't have people who we do trust, this is, and if we don't, not just have people who you can trust, if you don't have a time that's reserved to have these conversations, you need to be in DNA group. Now, a lot of you are, you know a lot of people are Renaissance, but you don't have a time reserved for you to pursue authentic relationships and conversations around scripture. So I would really encourage you to do that. Thirdly, we need to bring them to God in prayer. Here's the thing. God wants to hear about everything that's going on inside of you. Come to me, all of you who are heavy and laden. Come to me, Jesus says, and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus wants us to feel rest, but it requires that we come to him in prayer. Oh, what needless pain, all because we do not, um, all, all what needless pain we, ha- we, ha- we bear, all because we do not take everything we have to the Lord in prayer. A lot of us struggling unnecessarily with that. Last thing we need to do is we need to let God's word have the final say in our lives. One of the most misunderstood, misunderstood things about faith in life is that we should let our emotions drive our spiritual understanding. That what we believe and feel to be true should be the thing that we put in a driver's seat and be true and direct us in our life. What scripture calls us to do is the opposite. It calls us to speak to our souls and to, t- and to direct our emotions, to direct our physical person, and to trust that our emotional life will catch up to the proclamations and the declarations that we are speaking over our lives. So for some of you, I'm going to read some of these scriptures. You're not going to believe them yet. You're going to be like, yo, that would be amazing if I believed that. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to hear the scripture. I want you to write it down, and I want you to say it over yourself until you believe it's true. Because one day that will take root in your life, and it's going to bear fruit in your life if you uh, do not give up. So check this out. Shame says that you're condemned. You're condemned. Scripture says, God says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Scripture says, yo, you're worthless. Oh, oh, oh. shame says you're worthless. Scripture better not say that. <laughs> shame says you are worthless. God says we have value because we have been made in his image. Shame says God is nowhere near you. God is not close to you. After what you just did, Scripture says, he has never and he will never forsake you. Hebrews 13 and 5. Shame says you're on your own. I gave you hope a little bit, but you're on your own now. Scripture says, God is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Shame says, you only have a couple more chances or it's all up to you. Scripture says, Philippians 1 and and 6 It says that, for he who began a good work in you, he will complete it. Shame says something is wrong with you. You're never going to change, so you might as well give up and give in. God says, let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. Shame says, keep all of your issues to yourself. God says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Shame says, you're on your own. 
You're not valuable. You don't really matter. You're too inconsistent. God says, for you formed me, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I'm going to praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So that is your homework assignment this week, to think about scriptures, declarations that God makes over you, and to let those words have the final say. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, our Father, I pray that we would allow your voice, we would seek your voice to be the loudest voice in our lives, and that in hearing your voice, it would heal us of our concerns and our fears and our shame. Lord, I pray for vulnerability as these DNA groups are launching and forming, that they would be a place, respites, Lord, oasis of, of, of grace for your people to grow and to thrive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.